We've been sold the dream of a gas-fired recovery for manufacturing by the federal government, but as our new research shows, gas use should decline in Australia, both as an energy source for industry and in the home. I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and here with me today are two of Grattan's energy experts, Tony Wood and Guy Dundas, to discuss their latest report, Flame Out, The Future of Natural Gas. Welcome, Tony. Hello, Kat. And Guy, how are you? Oh, good, thanks. Hi, Kat. So the first misconception you identify is the belief that policy action can bring gas prices down. Tony, why isn't policy an effective method for bringing those prices down? Well, Kat, the, um, the simple answer is that it's difficult for government's policy to fight geology and fundamental economics. The slightly longer answer has a couple of bits to it to understand. The first thing is we need to think about, well, why did gas, gas prices go up? And gas prices had been... Three to four dollars a gigajoule for many, many years. A gigajoule just the unit of um, we measure gas uh, volume by. And those prices a few years ago, about five or six years ago, went up to well above ten dollars a gigajoule. Now that's a big increase, particularly for industrial users. They've moved down a little bit since then, but they've certainly well above what they were more than a decade ago. And one of the reasons is, look, as best as the geologists can tell us, um, we have exhausted on the east coast of Australia low-cost gas over the last 50 years. On the West Coast, that's not true. On the West Coast, we still have relatively low-cost gas available, and that gas is mostly exported, although a lot of it is consumed in Western Australia. So if we have a situation on the East Coast of Australia that we've largely um, exhausted those cheap sources of gas, the reality is that wherever the gas comes from to replace that, it's going to be more expensive. It's going to be probably $6 a gigajoule or above doesn't matter whether it comes from new onshore development, such as the Narrabri project in New South Wales, whether it's shipped in as liquefied natural gas from overseas or even from Western Australia or Queensland, or whether it's um, supplied into Victoria by new pipelines, it will still be more expensive. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we, we don't want to make sure that we continue to have gas for a while yet. We don't want to run short of gas in key markets as we plan and work for the longer term solutions. And we don't want domestic customers paying prices above what an efficient market would deliver. And there is some evidence, Kat, that it's not been, the market's not been as good as it should be. The government has taken some actions to help in this regard. And for example, having the ACCC involved in monitoring all this, but that's not really going to solve the problem. The danger we face is that the Commonwealth government may go much further beyond these policies as it has threatened it could and it could provide public funding to underwrite or subsidise major new gas infrastructure. Now, I'm optimistic the government won't do that because it would be a big mistake. It would either fail or it would be very expensive or both, and that would not be a good outcome. I'm going to turn to you, Guy, because we've talked previously about this on the podcast. The second misconception you address is the role of gas in manufacturing, namely that the federal government is overestimating the number of workers in sectors that are heavily reliant on gas. Can you take us through that a little bit? Sure, Kat. So I guess, um, you know, we really come here to the um, the purpose of, of why the government is talking about this idea of a, of a gas-fired recovery, and, and a lot of it does come down to manufacturing. So we've heard lines that, that gas is foundational to manufacturing, and we've heard an argument that if you're not for gas, then you're not for uh, manufacturing and, and jobs in those heavy industrial sectors. And um, we've also heard the government talk about uh, 225,000 workers that are heavily reliant on gas. So 
if those things, I guess, were true, if those things made sense based on the data, then there might be some payoff to um, to trying to reduce gas prices. Um, as Tony's pointed out, there's a lot of risk to that. But but our view is that the numbers are a lot smaller than 225,000. So we've really identified a, a very gas-intensive um, subsector of manufacturing uh, that uses over 60% of the gas in the manufacturing sector, but it uh, produces just 2% of the output in that sector as a whole. Uh, so those sectors are uh, alumina, ammonia chemicals manufacturing, and also polyethylene plastics manufacturing. And so um, we've identified about, about 15 facilities that are particularly gas intensive, and, and they would receive the, the bulk of any benefit of any reduction in gas prices. But, you know, they're, they're quite a narrow sector of the economy. So we're talking about, about 10,000 workers. To add a little bit more detail to that, um, a lot of these jobs and a lot of these activities uh, take place in Western Australia. And Western Australia already has low gas prices. The federal government's policies are almost exclusively focused on the East Coast market. So the benefit is actually even narrower than that. So very quickly, we should talk about the um, about the other 40% of gas used in manufacturing spread across the rest of the 98% of the manufacturing sector. So clearly gas is used widely around the manufacturing sector, but it's just not used as intensively as it is in, in those particular sectors that I talked about before. So we just don't see um, the benefits really flowing through in a way that's material, that's really going to drive investment, or that's really going to protect jobs in an effective way. And if we're thinking about how to best support the economy after the COVID recession, then we think there are ways that are more broad-based, that are going to um, give effects more quickly, and um, basically that are just less likely to lead to um, expensive and ineffective policy than focusing on gas use in manufacturing. And you mentioned in the report that instead of gas-led manufacturing, the government should promote a transition to lower emissions manufacturing. And I'm curious what that looks like and whether you can give us any example of where that's happening already. Yeah, so I guess the other tra- uh, the other challenge for gas in manufacturing is that it is a fossil fuel. And so if we're going to address um, climate change and, and, and meet our international commitments to reduce emissions, then we do need to move away from gas uh, over time. And, and that's not a case of turning off the tap tomorrow, but that's a case of doing it um, steadily and progressively. But, you know, we really think this is where the government should be focusing and, and, and really focusing, as you say, on that, that transition to lower emissions manufacturing. So it's best to think of this in, in really two parts. Some of those industrial sectors that I mentioned specifically before either use gas as a feedstock, which means that it, it ends up in the final product that, that they make. So, for example, uh, that's the case for ammonia, or they use uh, gas for very high temperature uh, activities. Now, in that case, you really need to think about substitutes such as hydrogen. So there's been a lot of talk about hydrogen, and that's something that the government has focused on in its uh, low emissions technology statement. We think this is positive, and, and really we need to start fleshing out that pathway forward to give those industries a, a viable and sustainable uh, future, but using lower emissions fuels and consistent with um, the need to address climate change. So We're seeing very early steps in that direction. So there are some small-scale trials around, for example, hydrogen use in ammonia, but we think there's scope to go further, particularly in alumina, where there are some very interesting um, technologies, and Australia is a major producer of alumina, which ends up making aluminium, but we we just haven't seen quite enough uh, movement in that area yet. So so we think there's scope to do some very exciting things at that um, heavy industry end. 
There's also a lot of very small um, gas users that use lower temperature heat. So it's either hot water or, or low temperature steam. In that case, um, electrification is a possibility for many of these industries. So rather than burning gas in a boiler to create hot water or steam, um, there's a, a piece of equipment called a, a heat pump that can effectively extract energy from the air and use that to heat water using electricity. And obviously that can also run on renewable electricity. So it's a very exciting way of um, creating renewable heat for industry. Now, that's something that's not widely used in Australia, and we think there's scope, again, to build on um, some small-scale trials that the government has already started and take those further so those um, those uh, smaller manufacturers can see their pathway forward to um, a lower emissions approach to manufacturing. Thanks, Guy. I think a lot of people are excited to see what new technologies can do to reduce emissions, especially in manufacturing. Tony, I wanted to, to you to discuss this third point um, and this third myth that you bust in the report, because it's a really important one, that gas can't be a transition fuel as we try to reduce emissions. Why is that? Well, Kat, this point goes to an idea of a decade or more ago that we think is now certainly confined to the status of a myth because of the passage of time. When gas was cheap and renewable energy was expensive, not that many years ago, I should point out, it was generally expected that gas would replace coal to reduce emissions and effectively the term that was used to provide baseload power. And technically, that was and remains possible. The trick is that those two assumptions are no longer true. Gas is now expensive and renewable energy is now cheap. So the whole thing is turned upside down and so it makes more sense that the bulk of our energy, our bulk of our electricity over the next periods ahead and into the future will come from fundamentally a combination of solar and wind. That means that that role of gas as a transition fuel in the way I described it no longer makes sense. It doesn't mean that gas doesn't have a role to play in the electricity generation sector, but it will more be a backstop to renewable energy, solar and wind, when, as they say, the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, then it would be as a replacement for coal, even though it is true that when you burn gas in a power station, it does produce lower emissions than coal. The problem is it's not anywhere near zero emissions and it's expensive. Thanks, Tony. Guy, I want to turn to you because a lot of us have gas in our own homes, particularly in Victoria and the ACT. I want to know what this move away from gas means for consumers. Sure, Kat. And, and look, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, firstly important to note that, you know, the, the same trends that we're seeing in, in, in industry and, and uh, power generation will ultimately also um, affect how we use gas in the home. And we need to start thinking about ways that are, are lower emissions. So there's, there's really, uh, two different ways you can do this. So, so one is to, to move towards electricity and, of course, reduce the emissions that come from the grid over time. And the second is to actually keep using the gas connections, the pipes and the, the, um, the appliances that we have today, but to move towards um, alternative fuels that don't produce emissions um, when they're burnt. So the two main examples of that are uh, methane, which is the same chemical uh, chemical composition as natural gas, but which is made from organic materials. So it, if you like, has a net zero effect of emissions when it's burnt. The other one is, is again, our friend hydrogen. So it is possible to move towards using hydrogen in the home. And I think it's fair to say that we, we don't know um, 
what the end outcome will be. We don't have a crystal ball and there's a lot of people debating this and and different people have different views. I I think the key finding from our work was really that the the end outcome may well be different, say, in Victoria and the ACT than it might be in, for example, Sydney, Brisbane or or Adelaide. And, And let me just walk you through the difference. So, as well, I'm sure the residents of these places know, um, you know, Melbourne and Canberra are quite cold. A lot of people use um, gas for their central heating, sometimes inducted systems, and these households use a lot more gas than um, households in places like Sydney, Brisbane, and even Adelaide, where th- there's perhaps a three to five times difference in the amount of gas between what the typical Victorian home might use and, and what the typical Adelaide or, or Sydney home might use. So really a, a very big difference. When we think of the places that have um, a lot of gas use, like Victoria and the ACT, there's quite a reasonable argument to say, well, if we do move to uh, electricity, then all of a sudden our power grid will have a lot of demand on it in the middle of winter on very cold nights and very cold mornings, and it will just be very expensive to upgrade that grid, and, and that looks like a hard way to do it. There may well be a good case for for looking at those low emissions gas substitutes in those places. But I think the most interesting thing from our report and and something that came through very strongly in in our analysis of what this means for households is that we think that switching to electricity is very clearly a cheaper option for um, new houses in Sydney, in Adelaide, in Brisbane today. So there are efficient electric alternatives to all of the gas appliances that that we use at home. Um, And based on today's prices, it's both uh, cheaper to use them and it's also lower in emissions because the grid is reducing in emissions. So probably the one that's of most interest to a lot of people is, is the cooktop. A lot of us, myself included, have always enjoyed cooking on a gas stove and has have bad memories of using electric stoves in old rental houses um, where you had one of those coils that take forever to heat up and they're very unresponsive and, and very, very difficult to cook with. It's important to know that there's a relatively new technology called induction, which is an electric technology, but which is much more efficient and much quicker than those old-fashioned electric stoves, and it has very much the same sort of performance as a gas stove. So when you layer those things together, you've got the improving efficiency and the improving functionality of these electric appliances, plus the fact that grid electricity is getting uh, cleaner over time, and the fact that households in, in many of these places will be better off going to electricity, we think there's a good case to actually start moving away from gas in New South Wales, in Queensland, and in South Australia uh, from today. And so new houses really are better off only using electricity, and that was a key finding of our report. Guy, you're bringing back the memories of university rentals uh, with their terrible electric stoves. So you float this idea of a moratorium on gas in your report. What I want to know is, are you trying to curb our fun and cancel all our barbecues? So, look, um, absolutely not. There will always be barbecues in Australia, and, and I'm prepared to, to state that categorically here. It's just a question of, of, of what they run on. So um, just to make an important distinction, most barbecues run on something called bottled gas, which is different to the, the gas that comes through the pipelines. And, you know, people would, you know, remember going down and swapping out their bottle at the service station or what have you. So, so the moratorium that we're talking about now is for the mains gas connections. We're not proposing any limitations on, on going down to the service station and getting a, a barbecue gas bottle and continuing to use um, to continue to use your barbecues. We don't think that would be um, worth doing. But clearly, we do need to reduce emissions uh, across the whole country uh, over time. And so it might be, Kat, in 2050, that when you're having a barbecue, 
you might be running it on hydrogen, that's possible, or you might be running it on the same bottled gas we use today, but it might come with a sticker attached that says, dear cat, the emissions from this gas have been offset because we've planted trees. So you can use your LPG, you can use your bottled gas for a barbecue, safe in the knowledge that you're not contributing to climate change. Absolutely, we'll still have barbecues. There's just a real question about how we manage the emissions that come from that. But we see lots of, of ways to ensure that Australians can still enjoy their barbecue in, in 2050. You heard it here first, folks. It's the hydrogen barbecue of the future. I'm looking forward to that. Turning to you, Tony, in the last for the last word, does gas still have a place as we transition to more renewable sources of energy? Look, Kat, I think the answer to that question lies in the way you framed it, and that is this word transition. Now, we need to be careful about that because transition to some people can mean a transition from something I know and love today to a future that I'm not going to love and I'm going to hate. Um, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think we've stepped out a few reasons why that would not be the case. If you look at those, those sectors, and we've already had a little bit to say about each of them, but if you look at manufacturing, as Guy said, the answer will be, depending upon the nature of the way the gas is used in manufacturing, the answer will be hydrogen, it may be electricity, um, it may be heat pumps, it may even be solar thermal energy, depending upon the circumstances. There will be challenges in converting from natural gas. But as we go down that path, the key role for government isn't to try and swim against that tide. The key role of government is to support, is to support the changes. That means particularly finding ways to fund the development and the ultimately the deployment of those low emission technologies that we've been talking about. And so that's why the governments, the federal government's technology investment roadmap does make sense because they will be looking to support those technologies, which will replace over time natural gas burning in those applications. In the power generation sector, again, gas will have almost certainly have a role to play um, as a backstop to wind and solar. However, that role doesn't require large volumes of gas. Our view today is based on the best information we have that this will go on for a while yet. And of course, that view will change because things will change in the future, which we don't know about. How quickly or slowly we phase out of gas and power generation will be part of the journey. And finally, as Guy's explained, there are alternatives to the use of natural gas in our homes and commercial buildings. And again, the future will play out quite differently and over time. So our central argument in this report, Kat, is not that we are bringing down the curtain on gas tomorrow, and we are certainly not advocating for the demise of manufacturing sectors that use natural gas today. But we are saying that we need to plan for inevitable change and that wishful thinking or denial are simply not good strategies to get us where we need to be. Thank you so much, Tony and Guy, for taking us through your new report and why we should move away from natural gas to renewables. If you'd like to read the new report and find out more, it's available for free on our website. And while I've got you there, Grant is a non-profit organisation and we make our research freely available to the public. If you've valued our work this year, please consider donating at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. Otherwise, you can join the conversation on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Institute. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>